Turn with me, if you would, to Isaiah chapter 11. Spencer read that a, a moment ago. That's where we'll be today for our, for our message as we stay in the book of Isaiah uh, throughout the Christmas season, looking at the prophecies given there. Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10 will be our focus. As we approach that, though, this morning, I want you to remember the background that we're in because it's, it's the same background from last week as we were in last week in Isaiah chapter, chapter 9. If you recall, uh, we still have Isaiah. We still have Isaiah prophesying to Judah, to the land of Judah at this time, uh, to King Ahaz, who is the king of Judah, and who is not a good king. He does not follow the ways of the Lord, does not honor God, and how he uh, is king over the people of God. And so because of this, God has proclaimed through Isaiah great destruction. You see, King Ahaz aligned with Assyria when he was told not to do that, and as a result, this destruction was pronounced. Yet in the midst of that great destruction, if you remember in chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, we have a great hope because we see that verse that we know so well this time of year, for unto us a child is born, for unto us a son is given. And so in the midst of destruction and calamity, and seemingly no hope, God being very kind and merciful and steadfast in his covenantal love, says, oh, there's still hope. And it's going to be in a child. It's going to be in a son that I will give you. And today, we still have this same background, okay? The same background is still there of destruction, of hurt. Still we have that hope in chapter 9. And as we get to chapter 11, we see hope being given to us Again, because in our verses today, there is a promise. There's a promise given to Israel as a whole, so Israel and Judah, all the people, that there will be a remnant, a remnant that will be left, a remnant that will be sustained, and a promise of a remnant, and that the house of Jacob, it says, will once again lean on the Lord. Not as King Ahaz is doing, not leaning on the Lord, but that once again it will happen. Not the things of this world will be hoped in, but the things in God and so it continues with the promise that the Lord God will cut down the enemies of God's people and all this will be done by the one spoken of in Isaiah 11, verses 1 through 10. And so I'm going to read all 10 verses uh, for us this morning and then we'll look at them more closely. All right? So follow along with me in your Bible there. It says, There shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. And the Spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him and the Spirit of wisdom and understanding the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. He shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. The wolf shall dwell with the lamb and the leopard shall lie down with the young goat. And the calf and the lion and the fattened calf together and a little child shall lead them. The cow and the bear shall graze. Their young shall lie down together. And the lion shall eat straw like the ox. The nursing child shall play over the hole of the cobra. And the weaned child shall put his hand on the adder's den. They shall not hurt or destroy 
in all my holy mountain, for the earth shall be full of the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. In that day, the root of Jesse, who shall stand as a signal for the peoples of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. This morning, I want to look at this king that's being promised here in a few ways. I'll just share them with you real quick. Some of you take notes. Uh, We want to look at the king's lineage here in verse 1. We also want to look together at the king's character, uh, the king's rule, the king's land, and then also the fact that he is king of all there in verse 10. So first in verse 1, we want to look at this king's lineage. I don't know how important your lineage is to you. But to some, it's very important. Maybe you've taken one of those tests where you spit in a tube and they tell you everything about yourself. I don't know if you got one of those yet for Christmas. Maybe this is the year you get that. All right, and you find out what you are, where you come from. But lineages are very important. And in the Bible, we see lineages all over the place. And it's because it actually tells us about the promises of God and how faithful he is. We see it, right? And here... In this passage, we have this king's lineage, and we're given a visual picture for us to really grasp and understand what's going on here. We see this promise that there shall come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse. Now, I'm sure that you've seen this before. You've, you've seen a shoot coming out from a stump. I'm sure that maybe you've had to deal with this in your yard a time or two, where you cut a tree down or you, you cut something down, and still that, that thing just keeps growing. You're like, I've cut you down, but stuff keeps popping up, and it's to your great annoyance in your flower bed or in your landscape that you have to keep going and dealing with it and messing with it. And you think, I've, I've killed this thing, didn't I? And you think, no, you haven't. You haven't dealt with it all yet because still we see these shoots coming from this stump. And this is the visual that we're given here, right? Because the people of Jesse have been cut Destruction has been planned for them and has been promised for them. But yet we have hope here saying, listen, a shoot is going to come from the stump of Jesse. We have hope being given here, right? And so to really grasp this point uh, to be made, we got to understand then who is, who's Jesse? What is so important about, about Jesse? And what is the connection being made here? Maybe some of you are saying, who is this Jesse all of a sudden? Right? Why is this so important? Well, you see, the Bible has given us a bunch of different covenants, has laid down some things, and all the way back in Genesis chapter 3, uh, we've had Adam and Eve, they have sinned, they've fallen short of what God had called them to do. And in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, in speaking to the serpent who deceived Eve and Adam, God has a promise for him. And in this promise, he says this in, in verse 15 of Genesis 3, He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So all the way back at the very beginning, we have a promise of offsprings that are coming and how God is going to use these offsprings in different ways to see his plan come about. So there's already been a promise of an offspring from this woman, from Eve, that was going to finally deal with the serpent. Okay, And so we go all the way back there because it's very important. Now, as we move through the Old Testament, there's a lot of places that we could go. But when we we get to 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 17, we have something important happen, and it's with King David. Now, King David 
was a man after God's own heart. He is the king that everybody looks to in, Jer- in Jerusalem and in Israel and Judah and all these places. King David is, is the perfect model of what a king should be. All right? Well, God had promised David something back in 2 Samuel verse 7, verse 12 through 17 that I want to read for you because this is the Davidic covenant. It says, When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be to him a father, and he shall be to me a son. When he commits iniquity, I will discipline him with the rod of men, with the stripes of the sons of men. But my steadfast love will not depart from him, as I took it from Saul, whom I put away from before you. And your house and your kingdom shall be made sure forever before me. Your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and in accordance with all this vision, Nathan spoke to David. See, God had made a promise with David that from his offspring would be a kingdom that would be forever. Forever. Well, the problem that kind of comes up is when we already get to Isaiah, Israel has become so messed up that they're a divided kingdom and everything is is messed up. Everything is already so, so crazy and the kings are all disobeying and not following what's supposed to happen that some probably are wondering what is happening with this promise that God made to David. Now what is going to take place? Well what Isaiah has a promise here that we've read this morning is he has a promise here that from the stump of Jesse a shoot is going to come up. Now again you might be asking well what is this Jesse? You've mentioned Adam and Eve and now you've mentioned David but Who is this Jesse that makes this so important? Well, Jesse was King David's father. It was his dad. And so we see from this stump of Jesse a promise that a king is going to come. And so this is who Jesse is. Jesse is the father of David. This lineage, though, I want us to know, was not chosen because of how outstanding it was, how special it was. Within this lineage, we have incest, we have prostitution, we have murder. We have almost every bad thing that you can think of that runs through this lineage and through this family. Yet it is through this line that God has chosen to save mankind. Think about your family for a minute. Would God choose your family to do anything for his kingdom? Think about the scoundrels in your group. Think about the people that you're going to have to talk to in the next few days. You don't want to. You don't want to see them, but it's what you do because it's Christmas time. You're going to put a smile on your face and you're going to talk to those crazy people that are blood related to you. But I want you to look at that crew when you're sitting there together and doing the things that you do. And I want you to think, would God choose this family for any purpose, for of any good? Because if we're honest, we look at our family, we would, we'd have to answer I don't know why he would. There's got to be a lot of better ones out there. We could say the exact same thing for David and his family. For Jesse and his family. Because you see how they continually mess up all the time. Even King David, who's looked at as this spectacular, fantastic king. And even God himself says a man after his own heart. Murderer. Adulterer. We have all these things that we can throw at even King David. What we see here in this lineage that brings hope for us is that God sends salvation for a messed up people through a messed up people. 
It really is an amazing story how God has worked this out for us. So no matter today how you feel about your family, no matter today about maybe how you feel about you, you sit here walking in this room today pretty messed up. And you know that. You know the sin in your life. You know the sin in your heart. You know the feelings you have, the attitudes that you have. You know the actions that you have. You look back on your family's past and you know all about that. And you think, I'm just maybe another generational curse. This morning, there's nothing in your lineage, there's nothing in your life, there's no sin in your life that is too much for the God who's come to save you through his son, through all this messed up life that we live. And I hope that that brings hope to your life this morning. Jesus, the Bible tells us, left all of glory. He, he left the perfection of all of his holiness and glory. Why? To come to this place. To wrap himself in flesh. To, to live amongst us. To go through every trial and every temptation that we would ever go through. But to live it perfectly. And he did this, number one, to honor his father. But number two, he did it to, mess, to fix your mess, messed up life. That's why he did it. And so you can't sit here this morning saying, well, things are just too messed up. No. He's come to conquer that, and he has conquered that. We also have something else here, though, in this first verse that can be difficult to grasp because it goes on to say, and a branch from his roots shall bear fruit. See, this is important, and things get a little clearer as we get to verse 10. Because when you get to verse 10, this comes in again. There's an, an inclusio, it would be called, happening here, connecting verse 1 and verse 10 together. right? And in verse 10 it says, In that day the root of Jesse. All of a sudden it says, the root of Jesse. Jesus is declared here to be the foundation for Jesse, the, the one who gives life to Jesse. It puts him above David, it puts him above Jesse, it puts him above all of that to say, really, from him has all things come. Because there's really, there's two things, right? Number one, he comes from the stump, not of David, but of Jesse, already placing this one to come on equal playing field with David. And what we should start to think and what we should start to see is there's one promise that's better than David. Because while David was a great king, David was anointed by Samuel and called out by God. Again, as I said, David wasn't perfect. And one of David's biggest flaws, he died. He's not here anymore. Cannot help him. But there's one coming from the root of Jesse, from the stump of Jesse, one on the evil playing field uh, with David here. But because he's from the root of Jesse, and he is the root of Jesse, this one even predates Jesse and all the lineage. It should help us maybe to think of Colossians chapter 1, verse 16. I'm not going to read it word by word, but it says, if you remember, it says, all things were created by him, for him on heaven and earth. This comes to our mind as we see this. Because what Isaiah is doing here is he's pointing again to the God-man that is going to come. One much greater than David. Oh, one much greater than Jesse. The offspring from the woman that is going to crush the serpent. Who's going to deal with it finally. And will reign on the throne forevermore. So that's what we see in verse 1 in this king's lineage. As we get to verses 2 through the first part of 3, we see the king's character. It says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, and the spirit of wisdom and understanding, the spirit of counsel and might, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord, and his delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. 
Now this phrase, in the spirit of the Lord, that we see here, this is a phrase that was often used for people in the Bible, when they were, when they were given a, a special task by God, we will see, and the spirit of the Lord came upon them for this special task. But there are some people in scripture, uh, people like Moses, Joshua, and even King David, uh, that the Bible tells us the spirit of the Lord rested upon them. And they had a special calling of the Lord, and, and God would work through them in miraculous and in mighty ways. And so here in Isaiah, the Messiah is promised to have the spirit of the Lord, to be the spirit-filled one that will never cease. Again, the problem with Moses, the problem with Joshua, the problem, is, the problem with David is they are dead. And that is a problem. If they are going to be our king, are going to be our savior, are going to be the prophet that we've always needed and wanted, they're gone. So they can no longer help. There's nothing there that they can do anymore. But here in Isaiah, the promise is that the spirit of the Lord will rest upon them and that it will be a forever the spirit-filled one that will never cease, that will never uh, be done with. And so it goes on and starts to explain this in a few ways. Number one, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. I told you about this commentary I've been reading. Alec Moitier, he points out that this is used for judicial and governmental attributes, the spirit of wisdom and understanding. You remember in chapter nine, it said the government shall be upon his shoulders. And he does this with perfection, with wisdom, and with understanding. I'm sure you've probably met people before who have some wisdom, but it seems no understanding. It's like, oh yeah, you have some of this, but you don't know how to use it. But then you have other people who have a lot of understanding. They seem to know how to handle people well, how to talk to people well, but they're just not that smart. Right? Well, what we need is we need both. And what we have here is a promise of one with perfect wisdom and perfect understanding and again, remember, this is judicial. This is governmental language that's happening here in the original Hebrew. And so can run things, everything perfectly smooth, without any hiccups, without any bumps along the way. But then it says the spirit of counsel and might. Now this phrase is kind of interesting. It's the exact same phrase, and you can turn there if you want, but in Isaiah 36, verse 5, this same phrase is used, but it's used talking about war. It says, do you think that the mere words are strategy and power for war? That phrase, words are strategy and power for war, is the exact same phrase used here. And so what Isaiah is talking about here, talking about spirit of counsel and of might, is he's attributing this to military strategy and power. That this, that this root, that this stump, right, this sprout from Jesse's stump, is the warrior that we need, the commander the one in charge of the armies, who never loses, who always wins, who has perfect counsel and everything, knows exactly where to go, knows exactly what to do. Some of you guys really love studying our old generals and colonels of the past. You like looking at World War I and World War II or maybe the American Revolution. And you like looking at the different strategies and the, and the risks sometimes that they would take. right? And that stuff is very fascinating. But in the books, they don't often like to put the times that we failed. Where it, fell, where it falled apart. And the fact is, that probably happens much more than it works. Because we're not perfect. But the promise that we have in this one to come says that the spirit of counsel and might and it's of perfection. No losing. No bad strategy. The phrase, no man left behind. We try to say that, but we can't hold to that perfectly. Oh, he can. And he will. There'll be none of his children left behind. 
ever. It's not going to happen. Why? Because he has the spirit of counsel, but not just of counsel, of the might to do it also. There's a lot of people who like to talk a big game, but you realize real quick they can't back it up. I found it funny yesterday. We were at Jackson's basketball game. Some of those kids act so tough. And I think it'd take one punch to your mouth and you would be a crying little baby. Real quick. You talk a big game. But I don't think you can back it up. Well, in this person that's being promised here in Isaiah, there's all they can talk a big game, but also have the might to back it up. Every step of the way. And then it says the spirit of knowledge and fear of the Lord. This is pointing to the fact that he will know all and he will do all. And it is the right call every time. And this is what describes the character of our king. Wisdom, understanding, counsel, and might, knowledge, and a fear of the Lord. These are the promises of the one king to come. Well, then when you get in the second half of verse 3 all the way through verse 5, we see the king's rule. He shall not judge by what his eyes see or decide disputes by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he shall judge the poor and decide with equity for the meek of the earth. And he shall strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he shall kill the wicked. Righteousness shall be the belt of his waist and faithfulness the belt of his loins. You notice there in the last part of verse 3 in the very beginning of verse 4 that he's a judge but he's a judge in righteousness and in perfection. Notice how the king cares for the poor in this passage. He cares for the hurting, which is an interesting thing because if you're a king and you're going to come and you're going to enter into this kingdom and you're going to rule this kingdom, the people that you want to go after are not the poor in the hurting. They cannot do anything for you. How are they going to help you? They're not going to fight your battles. They're not the warriors. They're not the mighty ones. They're not going to be able to give you offerings and give you money to be able to do whatever it is you want to do in your kingdom. They have no power to do that because they're poor and they're Helpless, yet we see with this king, this is where he goes. He goes to care for the downtrodden, for the meek, for the weak. And so we see this in this king, and we don't see this in other kings. Yet those who normally would give value to a kingdom, it says he dashes. Right? It says he he destroys them. He goes after them. What are, we, what are we getting here? What, what, what is happening within this king's rule? Well, what we see in this king's rule is we see that there needs to be sole dependency on this king and not on other things. That's, that's the picture we have here. The hurting and the poor, they have nothing to put their hope in. There's nothing on this earth that they can put their hope in, but when the king comes, the true king comes, and he comes to them, they realize real quickly, this is my hope. It's the only hope I have. It's the others. It's those who are rich. It's those who who have. It's those who've been in power or maybe had some authority. They feel that there's hope in this world. And all of a sudden, they're dashed to pieces. All of a sudden, it is them who find themselves dashed apart. And what we see here from this kingdom is that in order to be a part of this kingdom and to be loved by this king and be a part of this king is one must be humble and lowly like those who are hurting, like those who are meek. It's a difficult thing for us to hear in the country we live. Because the fact is, all of us in this room probably are rich. I shouldn't even say probably. We are rich from worldly standards. We've been blessed to live in the time we live in. I know some of you would love to go back and live in some other times. You're crazy. 
I love that we have antibiotics and I don't have to die from an infection in my finger. I love that I can go to a doctor and tell me what's going on. I love things, if I'm being honest with you. And there's a time we have a lot of things. There's a lot of blessings that we have. But that comes with, with some weight as well. And we have to realize that. We have to understand that position. And we need to realize that we have to fall on our face before this king where we understand that he is our only hope, not the things of this world, not the things that we've acquired, not the family that you get to spend time with. They are not your hope. Only he is. Alistair Begg this week, I try to listen to him every week, a little bit. He was saying this week that oftentimes what he feels God does with the rich is he allows them to keep getting richer. Go ahead, keep getting richer, keep getting richer. Until maybe they just finally will get to the point to when they understand there's no hope in this. I've accumulated everything. There's nothing more to accumulate and still... I can't buy my salvation. I can't buy my justification. I, I can't fix everything that's wrong. There still is no hope that hopefully through being so rich they will see and realize maybe there's something else. Maybe there's someone else that I can turn to. You see, we're told here in verse 5 that this king actually is righteousness. That he is actually faithfulness. That the Lord is the embodiment of what righteousness is and what, and what faithfulness is. And this king, our Lord, as he rules, he rules perfectly and lovingly with no end. Notice, it's not about what he hears. It's not about what he sees. He doesn't need to hear. He doesn't need to see. He can judge perfectly within his justice, within his righteousness. This is something, again, that I think we should understand that we're just not able to do. If you're a parent here, you know that you cannot make a judgment call with your children based on what your children tell you. You can't do it because, first of all, if it has to do with two of your children, they're both lying, usually, right? And so you, you hear the one, you won't believe what he did to me. He kicked me right in the face. Well, why? I don't know. I wasn't doing anything. Just came up and kicked me in the face. Okay. If I was to make a judgment right there, it probably wouldn't be perfect because, again, I've only heard one side of the story. You talk to the other one. Why'd you kick him in the face? I didn't kick him in the face. I kicked him in the leg. Why'd you kick him in the leg? Because he kicked me in the stomach. What? This wasn't told. Okay. And you keep going back and forth until finally, usually, at least this is how I do it, you're both in trouble. I don't know what happened. You're both in trouble. You both need to be dealt with. You see, this king doesn't need to hear the story this king knows knows perfectly and his rule is perfect and just and righteous every time as we get to verses six through nine we see the king's land in this section we really have a strange picture don't we we already have this picture of a, a stump a shoot coming from the stump from the roots and now we have another picture and in this picture we have predator and we have prey, eating together, relaxing together. We see lions chewing on grass and bears chewing on grass. We don't see any, any attacks or nothing. It's very strange and it's very odd. If you've ever spent any time in the wilderness, you would know this is not how it goes. Everything is looking for their next meal and they're willing to do whatever it takes. 
But here we don't have that. There seems to be no more danger because we have a child playing next to a cobra's hole. Oh, what parent would allow that? You wouldn't allow that. Something as innocent as a child who can't even move? And you'd lay it down right by the den of a cobra? No, no parent does that. But this is the picture we have in this land. And maybe the strangest picture that we have in all of this land is it says there's a child leading them. Now, who in their right mind would let a child lead them? Would let a child make these huge decisions? Well, sadly, it would happen here probably nowadays. But we don't like that, do we? We don't let a child make the decisions. Why? Because they don't have the wisdom and understanding to do that at this point. But yet this is what we have in this land. This is there in verse 6. And a child shall lead them. Again, none of this makes sense today. None of this could happen out in our fields. None of this could happen in the woods. None of this could happen out in our oceans. It's something that doesn't, we can't compute But in this, we see the promise of the land of the kingdom of our Lord. And what is trying to be portrayed here is there's no more fear. In this land of this king that is being promised, there's there's no more danger. And all of this from a child, from the child promised in chapter 9. Can you imagine living in a land where you never had to wonder or think through a tough situation ever again? You never had to go to bed at night wondering what's going to happen tomorrow. You never have to walk into a doctor's office and sit in the chair and feel the weight of when that door opens and the doctor's going to reveal to you the results of the test. Never have to experience that. Never have to worry about is this bill going to get paid? Am I going to be able to make it? Never be afraid to turn on the TV to wonder what headline is going to happen next. Can you imagine that? You can't. I can't. I've lived my whole life in fear. And so have you. Fear of the unknown. Fear of wondering what's going to happen to me. What's going to come next? There was even great fear at times of, God, are you going to come before I get to do X, Y, and Z? We live in this way all the time. And so when we read that in this king's land, the bear and the cow graze together in the field, we think, what? We hear a promise of no more worries, no more strife, and we wonder, can this be true? The answer is yes. Now think about this with, I, with who Isaiah is talking to. He's talking to a people who are about to be ransacked by Assyria. They're in a real tough situation. Their borders are closing very quickly. Their king has already basically turned the keys over to this country. And so you talk about having no hope, and now you're, you're saying a child is going to lead us, and, and the promise is no danger, perfect harmony, perfect peace, Yes, that's the promise we have in this one. Paul, Paul speaks about this in Romans chapter 8. In Romans chapter 8, verse 18 through 25, it says, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, 
but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. Now hope that is seen is not hope, for who hopes for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. You see, what we have happening in this land is we have what's being prophesied here in Isaiah is the promise that we still wait for today. A return back to Eden. A return back to restoration. When the world is as it should be, of perfect harmony. You see, the first death didn't occur of an animal until Adam and Eve sinned. And death needed to be done because sin had happened. The wages of sin is death. Now God in his mercy didn't kill Adam and Eve. He had them sit there and watch one of these animals die. An animal that had done no wrong. It was perfect in Eden. It had done no wrong. But God had to have that one killed. And then, if that wasn't bad enough to watch this animal die, they had to cover themselves with its own skin. Now the weight that that had to feel on Adam and Eve, but it was a picture of this has just happened. Everything's changed. Because of sin, everything has been corrupted. But the promise that we have in this child that's going to come from the, the stump of Jesse is this child will lead us and there'll be a return back to Eden as his kingdom of perfection, of restoration. And then in verse 10, lastly, we see the promise that he is the king of all. It says, In that day the root of Jesse who shall stand as a signal for the peoples, of him shall the nations inquire, and his resting place shall be glorious. As I said at the beginning of this message, yes, uh, the promise is for the remnant of Israel. The promise is for the line of Jacob. Yet we see here all the nations coming to him. Just like in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 through 7, where it talked about how the promised Messiah would draw all men to himself. We have that happening here as well. Jesus himself tells us in John chapter 12, verse 32, he says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. This is the fulfillment of this prophecy that had been taking place in Isaiah. Jesus says, when I go up on that cross, it is drawing every man to me. Every man to me. From all people, all nations, all tribes and all tongues to come to me. And in his death, Jesus has provided just that. Justification for all peoples, and for all nations. It is there. The promise that was made in Isaiah is there for us still today. For those who by grace through faith would just trust in him. I want to kind of close by reading Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13 is a very simple thing to understand for any of you in here this morning. And as I said, no matter how dirty your past is, no matter how filthy you feel like you are, this promise is for you just like it is for the person sitting next to you who you look at and think, man, look how buttoned up and clean they are, even though they're not. But in Romans chapter 10, verse 9 through 13, it says, because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart, that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, 
And with the mouth one, con- one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Now that's an important thing to know and to believe and to trust. Everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Again, that's that promise that we had with his might and with his counsel. None of my children will I leave behind. None of my children will be left for destruction. That is the promise. It's not some magical thing. It's not some crazy thing. Those who confess, who believe, who believe that Jesus came, that he lived, that he died, and he rose again, and he did that. Why? In your place, for you, you will be saved. No, no exemptions. No buts. It's for you. you. You can't look at this and say again, well, my past is too bad. My lineage is too bad. No. It doesn't talk about that. It doesn't say that. If you will trust and believe, you will be saved. That's the great glorious truth we have as a church because of our king. So this king that Isaiah prophesies about and that is fulfilled in Jesus, what do we see? I think Pastor Spencer mentioned this on our midweek sermon recap. We see in this king the exact opposite of King Ahaz. The king that these people see and who is leading them is really the exact opposite of the one that Isaiah is talking about here. Dumb decisions, poor counsel, no might or power at all. He's given it over to the Assyrians. Oh, that's not what's going to be in this child. This child, you have the exact opposite. You'll have the perfect king. You'll have the king that always follows God's law, who has the fear of the Lord and rejoices even in the fear of the Lord. Ahaz was supposed to be a light to the nations. He was supposed to love his people, and he failed this in every way. Thankfully, today we stand 2,000-some years after Christ. We have no need for some earthly king anymore to save us, to deal with our problem of sin and of rebellion. And we don't have this anymore because we have the living king who reigns forevermore. The one, the root of Jesse, Jesus himself. Now, of course, as we sit here today, we don't look outside and see the land in perfect harmony. We just don't do that. I mean, even yesterday I was raking my leaves. There was a squirrel's foot. Something got it. I don't know what it was, but something got it. And there's not perfect harmony We just don't witness this. And you might ask, why isn't this happening? When is the return of Eden going to come? Why isn't it taking place? It said when the child come, and we know that Jesus came. So what what is going on here? Well, we sit here today with the same promise that they were promised in Isaiah. Oh, the child came. But you remember they wanted to make him king. They wanted to make him ruler. They were expecting military might and power. And Jesus kept confounding them by saying, that's not your issue. That's not your issue. I've come to conquer death, to conquer hell, to conquer the grave, to deal with your sin. Right? Even in talking with Nicodemus, you need to be born again, Nicodemus. What? See, there wasn't a comprehension. They were waiting for the return of Eden. That's not what they got the first time. 
And so we come together and we celebrate the first advent. We celebrate Christ's coming and dealing with our major problems, sin, death, hell, and the grave. The spiritual restoration that you and I need that Pastor Spencer talked about when he was praying. Christ has given us that. And I've already talked about that this morning. If you would believe and confess, you will be saved. That's the promise of spiritual restoration. But we do sit here this morning, just like the people of Judah, maybe listening to Isaiah, longing and waiting for the day for Eden to return. And we must trust that it will return. See, as we celebrate Advent, one of the parts of Advent is we're supposed to be talking much and looking forward to the second Advent. The day when Christ will return. When he will restore everything. When he will judge the nations with righteousness and with faithfulness. When the land will be restored. Will there will be perfect harmony. Will there be a new heavens and a, a new earth. And the Bible tells us that in the new heavens and the new earth sits on the throne the king forever. And is there where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And just as true as the fact that Jesus came and we grasp it and we hold it and we know it, just as true as this promise that we wait for. It's like the already not yet. Has it happened? Yes and no. I haven't seen it fully yet. But the Bible tells us it will come. And that we are even as Christians supposed to be praying and seeking after God saying, Lord Jesus, come again. And so as we celebrate the Advent season, as we celebrate the birth of Christ, this Christmas time, let's not forget, he's coming back. He's coming back for us. He's coming back for his children, right? And he won't leave any of us back. He won't leave any of us behind because we've been saved by his grace. And the Bible tells us he holds us in his right hand. Our names are written in the Lamb's Book of Life as we read there in Revelation. Who can open the scroll? The child. It's the child. It's the root of Jesse. He comes to open the scroll. He's the one who has saved us and will sustain us. Well, I hope that's true in your life this morning. I hope if you forgot that as a Christian, if you haven't been putting your hope in him, I, I hope that God deals with you some this morning. I hope you'll deal with maybe any sin in your life, any frustration in your life, that you'd come to him in repentance but I've been praying much this week and even this morning for those of you this morning who you've never trusted in Christ. You've just felt for so long you were not good enough for him. Oh, you might not be good enough for him, but I can promise you this. He was good enough for you if you just trust in him. And I hope you'll do that this morning. Let's bow together. Let's pray. And then we'll have a time to respond to the word of God and to sing one more song together. God, we thank you for your word this morning. I thank you for the truth of it. I pray that you would soak it deep down into our hearts, into our minds, into our lives. God, we thank you for these prophecies that were prophesied by Isaiah as you gave him these prophecies a long time before Christ that you still today we have our hope in. God, I thank you that Christ has fulfilled all of them perfectly. And God, we look forward to that day of Christ's return. We look forward to the new heavens and the new earth when we can worship you forever with no more pain, with no more sorrow, with no more trouble, with no more wondering and anguish. None of that. So God, we pray that that day would come soon.
God, I pray this morning you would work in the hearts and in the lives of your people, that they have heard your voice through your word, that you would humble them enough to respond to you how they should today. God, we thank you, we praise you in Christ's name. Amen.